Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Today we're going to talk about Genesis and specifically about the overall purpose of Genesis and how its structure helps facilitate or accomplish that purpose. So in order to do that, I want to bring us back to the beginning of Genesis and lay out how it starts. Obviously, Genesis 1 and 2 are super important to the biblical storyline. And Genesis 1 and 2 starts with the absence of sin, the perfection of creation over and over again. In Genesis 1, you see the repetition of a phrase saying, and God saw that it was good, and it was good. And then the narrative ends in Genesis 1 by saying that it was very good. In essence, Genesis 1 and 2 paints the, the picture of perfection, how God creates a world that is made for mankind to rule as his vice regent, to take care of creation, and everything's good. At the end of Genesis 2, you are felt with, or you're left with a feeling of deep satisfaction at what God has done. But then comes Genesis 3, right? And Genesis 3 brings in this, this, I mean, for lack of a better term, this, this complete downer, this, this depression causing story where paradise is lost and mankind has alienated themselves from God. In fact, one of the interpretive issues that people sometimes struggle with is the whole concept of God says, don't take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you do that, you will die. You will surely die. And people sometimes say, well, wait, man didn't actually die when he took, so maybe was God wrong? But the real issue, if we think about what it means to die, is in the Hebrew conception of death, Death isn't just a physical reality. In fact, it's used in the Old Testament in plenty of places to communicate the perdition or spiritual death, um, eternal destruction. And so I think it'd be, we'd be better served to think of death being a result of the fall as a spiritual death, which is linked then with physical death. Uh, to put it another way, we physically die because we spiritually are dead. And so that's an important understanding is that in Genesis 3, we come face to face with the fact that mankind has become alienated from God and they really have no basis for hope. There is, at this point in the story, no reason why they should expect uh, anything other than just dying uh, physically because they are spiritually dead at that point. But... Enter in the grace and mercy of our Lord in Genesis 3.15. In talking to the serpent, in cursing the serpent, what God says is, I will place enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, one of the interesting things about Genesis 3.15 is that there is a parallel structure here which gives a promise and it really is the foundation for hope that belongs in the rest of the entire scripture. So when we break down Genesis 3.15, you can kind of see three successive parallels. 
The first parallel is that there's going to be enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and between the woman. That's an individual conflict going on between you and the woman. But then there's also a posterity conflict between your seed, your offspring, and between her seed, her offspring. In other words, um, there's going to be successive lines that are in conflict, the, the line of the serpent and the line of the woman that are in conflict. But then notice that the third the third successive parallel actually breaks the pattern because then it switches because it doesn't revert fully to the first pattern, but neither does it continue the second pattern. It says, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Notice the comparison there. It's no longer you against the woman. It's no longer your seed against her seed. It's a individual. He is going to do something, and you are still going to be around. And that's one of the reasons why we know that this can't just be talking about a snake or a serpent. There's there's a dark force behind the serpent, and we know him as Satan. And we know that this is happening because this promise by God is assuming that this individual behind the serpent is still going to be around at the time that this individual comes and deals the death blow to his head. Now, this, you, you might be saying, well, is that how people would have understood it? Well, yeah, we have indication even from the Greek translation of the Hebrew in Genesis 3.15 that they translated this phrase with the masculine singular referent, not as a neuter referent or anything else that could have indicated this was a plural or it could have indicated that this was uh, in reference to the seed, which would be uh, more of a neuter idea. But no, he translates it as a masculine singular, he um, will do this action. And so from this point on, this is the key takeaway. From Genesis 3.15, what we see is an expectation then that there's going to be an individual who represents the line of the woman and who goes up against this dark force behind the serpent and does battle and emerges victorious. You know, one of the, one of my favorite commentaries on Genesis, which he only covers chapters one through four in the commentary, but, uh, John Collins says this on this verse. He says, Genesis 3.15 then is a promise of a personal redeemer who will undo the trouble Adam brought us all into by acting as a champion or a representative, unquote. And I think that's really the key there is that this individual who's promised is basically the uh, human representative uh, who's going to right the wrong, reconcile God with humanity. And so there you have the first inklings of the fact that, hey, there is hope for mankind. It's not all over. There is an expectation of a redeemer. And that's just such a beautiful thing. Now, with that in mind, you kind of say, okay, I understand that. Maybe you've even heard that before. But how does that play into how Genesis is even structured? And here's something that I think is often minimized in our reading of Scripture, is that we sometimes forget that all of Scripture is is oriented or pointed toward this reality of this coming Redeemer. And even the whole structure, as we'll see, of the Old Testament into the New Testament expects somebody to come and fulfill this promise. So there's a phrase in Genesis that you, um, depending on which translation you have, is translated various ways. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Eletoladot, 
which is normally translated something like these are the generations or something like that uh, from the ESV or, or something. Now, what we understand with that uh, different phrase is it occurs, or a phrase similar in that regard, occurs uh, at different times throughout Genesis. You have it occurring in Genesis 2-4. You have it occurring in Genesis 5-1, Genesis 6-9, 10-1, 11, 10, 11, 27, 25, 12, 25, 19, 36, 1, 36, 9, and 37, 2. So it occurs a few times. And if we, if we study this structure, what we come away with is the fact that this is the way that the author of Genesis, God working in tandem with Moses, is organizing Genesis to create uh, for lack of a better term, their own chapters. I mean, sometimes, and I include myself with this, we get carried away with dividing uh, the Bible with how it's been uh, divided with our chapters in our English Bibles, and yet the original writings did not have chapters or verse demarcations, and so we need to understand that there are other indications of structure that show up as well. So, one of the things that uh, is most interesting about the study of this phrase and, and how it divides up Genesis is how there's also a indication within that phrase itself. Some of them are included with a, with a vav in the Hebrew, which if you don't know Hebrew, basically that's how you say and in, in Hebrew. We say and in English and they would say vav. Um, and when, when you examine those structures, you'll come away with something that's interesting. Uh, and by the way, some of this is taken from Jace, Jason DeRoshi's article that he released in the Jets Journal. Uh, you could just Google that and you could come up with his article and you can see some of the charts that he's given on this. He's done a really good job. And when we compare that, what we see is that there are five standalone sections of this Toledot formula, this generational formula, and there are also uh, five other successive uh, generation formulas that include the Vav that are subservient or subpoints to the main points. So in other words, when I explain it, this is what this is what it looks looks like. The first main section, after Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, which is a standalone section as the introduction to the whole book, talking about how God has created everything, that's the preface or the introduction to Genesis. Then Genesis 2, 4 says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That section lasts till 426. And then in 5, 1, you say, or you see these are the generations of Adam. Then And it lists the generations of Adam giving the genealogies, which are not exhaustive genealogies, but they pick specific individuals to show who are descended from Adam, tracing a line, a lineage. And we'll talk more about that in a second. So they trace the lineage through Adam there. And then a new section starts in Genesis 6-9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah, who's been traced from Adam's genealogy, now were brought to Noah's genealogy. And then in 10.1, we see a subsection with the formula indicating, and these are the generations of Noah's sons. Now, depending on what you have in the English, 
Your English Bible may not pick up on the fact that there is a vav included in that, but in the Hebrew there is. And so that should be viewed as a subsection of that third section of Noah. So Noah's sons are included as a subsection to the, to the generation of Noah, his section. And that section lasts till 11.9 after the Tower of Babel. And then section four begins. These are the generations of Shem. And that's a, a new section. That's section four. That begins in 11.10. And now here's the interesting thing. The next four generational formulas, these are the generations of Terah in 11.27. These are the generations of Ishmael in 25.12. These are the generations of Isaac, 25.19. And these are the generations of Esau, 36.1 and 36.9. All of those contain the Vav. Prefix. And so what that indicates is that those are subsections of the entire generational formula of Shem. And so if we include that, basically section four of Genesis goes from Genesis 11.10 all the way through 37.1. That's all section four. It all deals with the generational formula of Shem, talking about Shem's family, talking about the promised line, which began in Genesis 3.15, talking about a redeemer, now talking about how it comes through Shem. There's there's some side points talking about Ishmael, Isaac, and Esau, because those are all descended from Shem's, and they're important to biblical history, so there is side notes on them. But those are all within the overall section of Shem. Now, after that section, we get to the final fifth section, which is the generation of Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob that lasts from 37.2 to 50.26, which is the end of Genesis. Now, when we look overall, if that structure is correct, there's a couple important applicational items that we need to take away from that. First, I've already mentioned this, but we just need to be reminded that the English chapter structures for us are not inspired. And we need to be sensitive to how Moses wanted us to see the development of his material in Genesis. He wasn't, uh, to put it this way, Moses wasn't a first grader who was just writing an assignment with no coherent order whatsoever. No, there's actually thought and logic behind what he's doing. He's organizing the book in a way that gives us a specific message. So, I mean, don't throw away your English Bibles, obviously, but just remember that the chapter divisions aren't inspired. So just because there's a chapter division doesn't mean that's necessarily super important. So also, though, with this structure, then, the emphasis is on section four, which includes Shem through Isaac. And that is a huge part of the story. You have the promise to Abraham, where God uses Abraham and his descendants now to basically start the plan of redemption for the entire nation, or not the entire nation, excuse me, the entire world. And also you have an emphasis, uh, reduplication of that promise to his successive nation, to his successive descendants. Abraham, you have the promise to Isaac, you have the uh, promises given multiple times. And you see then that Genesis, the majority, as dictated by the structure, puts the focus on God's promises and what God is doing through the family of Shem, which the majority of would be Abraham, right? And that's an important thing to understand in what Genesis is trying to communicate. 
In addition, as we look at this literary structure, you'll notice also that these generations include specific genealogies. Now, you might say, okay, genealogies, that's just what I read when I want to go to sleep or something. But one of the things that we really need to understand is genealogies are essential in the biblical storyline. They're so important. We uh, we should slap ourselves in the face sometimes with just how we ignore those uh, with our lack of um, sensitivity. But in reality, Genesis is tracing that promise in Genesis 3.15, saying there's going to become a singular redeemer, a champion who's going to right the wrong that was done by Adam and Eve. And as we trace those genealogies through this Toledot formula, through this generational formula, we see that line being narrowed down. First, we see it narrowed down to Noah. Then we see it narrowed down to Shem. Now we see it narrowed down through Abraham into Isaac and now into Jacob. And so through that, it's narrowed all the way down through Jacob and his sons. Now, what we also see then is that same formula is actually picked up elsewhere in the Old Testament. In fact, if we look at Ruth 4, in Ruth 4.18, we see this phrase. Now, these are the generations of Perez. And, of course, Perez is related to Judah, who we would know from Genesis 49 is the is to be the ruling family of Israel uh, related to Judah. Now, if we think about the book of Ruth, for example, Ruth doesn't, I mean, that doesn't strike people a lot of times as having a lot of importance to biblical theology. And what's even more strange is probably that the the dramatic story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi it ends in a genealogy. I mean, talk about an anticlimactic ending for a lot of people. It ends in a genealogy. But but listen to this. This is the most important part of the book because that solidifies the connection to Genesis now resulting all the way to David. So now we've narrowed down the line, which Ruth is all about uh, the connection between Genesis and David now. We see that David is going to be the chosen one through Jesse. Jesse being his father. Now, so far from Genesis through Ruth, we've covered Adam through David, essentially. Now we get to Matthew 1.1. Guess how Matthew starts? Matthew picks up that exact same formula and says this is the book of the generations or genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's the same phrase, same concept there. And He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, that's so important because now Matthew 1.1 launches the New Testament with a direct connection to that Genesis 3.15 promise saying that 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 Redeemer that we wanted to come, that champion, we can trace him and now he's here in the New Testament. And that's just such a wonderful reality where that hope for thousands of years, which was driving the people of God, that there is going to come a champion who will right what what went wrong in the garden. That champion, we can trace him all the way to Adam. We know he's here and he has accomplished so much. And so it's really a, a misnomer to say that genealogies are boring. If you view them the right way, you understand what's going on. And Genesis obviously is important for many reasons. But one of the primary reasons Genesis exists is to trace what God is doing at the very beginning 
and provide that foundation for the rest of Scripture in order to contextualize what's going on. And so I just encourage you, when you read through Genesis, really focus on the, how everything is is pointing pointing towards something great. The reality that God has made these great promises, that he has things in the working, where he is going to accomplish so much through his champion, and we can trace that promise through the genealogies, through God's promise of offspring, and see that come onto the scene, see him, that singular offspring, come onto the scene in the New Testament. So thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion of Genesis. Email me if you have comments or questions. My email is peter at petergaming.com. For more information on the podcast or about me, please visit petergaming.com. For more information on Shepherds Seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, Alpha Beterzee.